tonight. And I'd ask him if I needed to follow his outline as to what he's teaching us every Wednesday night. And he said, no, just take your own choice. So although Mike has talked a little about what we're going to be talking about, I want us to spend a little more time. If you got your Bible, open it, if you will, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be talking about some things there that are very, very important in our time today. We're living in times where we see things that were never, never, ever the case. I've just read just recently of a school where it was against the rule to bring in a, a copy of the Bible and the students were going to protest and every one of them were going to bring a Bible the next day. I don't know what happened as a result of that. But I can understand it in our modern times. I grew up in a, outside in the country, not in, not in a city. Had a little two-room country school across the road from where we lived. And I went there from, really from the first grade through the eighth grade. Two rooms, first room had four grades, first four grades, the second room had the last four grades. We began every morning with a Bible reading. We began every morning with a standing for the Pledge of Allegiance. We did that, and nobody complained. We even had to memorize a passage of Scripture every so often. I've forgotten exactly how often it was. And state that as one of the texts that we were using. Today, Do you realize today in our modern times, there are 55, 52 nations in our world today in which it's illegal for you to own a Bible? If you're caught in, with a Bible in your possession, you can have up to nine years penalty in jail, in prison. If you uh, come uh, 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 embarrass somebody that's part of their religion with, with, the, with the Bible, you can, they can take your life and not have to suffer a penalty for it. We have so many things that have changed in our world today and the time in which we've lived. And we see over and over again the idea that, that people are not interested in what the Bible says. Not, I, I believe the Bible to be the inspired Word of God, the verbally inspired Word of God. I believe it's the answer that God's given us to all questions religious. And I hope you believe the same thing. So many in our world today do not. There are even so-called Christian churches that have a different opinion about Jesus than what the Bible has. One of them, for instance, in John chapter 1 and verse 1, in which John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
they've come in with their translators and they've added in that verse, in the beginning was God, the word was the word, the word was God, and they've added the word a. The word was a God. Little g in that, in that word God. Others believe that Jesus was just another man. Perhaps a, a prophet from the Old Testament, but, uh, you know, just, just an ordinary man, ordinary man. We cannot hold those opinions when we read the Bible. And I want us to think about some things. See, I, I, I realize one of the most important questions that we ever have to decide for ourselves is who is God? You know, our world today goes all the way around that idea. Who is this Jesus? They go all the way around it without ever admitting who he is. We have difficulty, and I understand that. Conceiving of a powerful God who can speak, and this world comes into existence. We have difficulty really thinking about that. When we, when we began to somehow begin to kind of grasp that idea, we tend to lose sight of God being such a loving God. It seems that the emphasis changes in our thinking. You see, when we read about God in the New Testament, we read about Father God. Jesus teaching the apostles to pray in John, uh, Matthew chapter 6 began that prayer by saying our Father. One of the greatest blessings I think any of us can ever have as a Christian is knowing that God's our Father. We're part of that family. We can refer to him as our Father he refers to us as his children. He dwells with us and all of this. And when we add the difficulties of, the, uh, of Christ who came to this world uh, and the Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of the New Testament, it is hard to comprehend God. I understand that. I recognize that our world today is a little different from Paul's world. And yet Paul, as he wrote this letter to Colossians, was dealing with a problem they had. He knew false doctrine was making its way known at that time. Some have suggested that perhaps Paul was being faced with the idea of Gnosticism, which believes that Jesus didn't die on the cross. He put somebody else there. Jesus wasn't a physical being. He was a spiritual being. Period. But as we study from it, the old historians tell us that the idea of Gnosticism didn't really become effective until about the second century. Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison in Rome. Somewhere in the vicinity of 64, 65 
B.C., A.D. So it couldn't have been that. Many of the study Bible students, many of the those who are very de- densely into that study of the Scripture, suggest that this is referred to as the Colossian heresy because it had to do with Jesus. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I believe that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction and righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly and completely equipped for every good work. If we want to do what God wants us to do, and we understand that passage, we're going to have to understand one thing. We're going to be obedient to what God says. I appreciated our devotional a moment ago. That stress, that idea of obedience. Or then, I want you to notice something else. In Jude chapter 1, Jude, the writer of this, probably was one of the half-brothers of Jesus. It's considered that. Jude tells us that he found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. One, one translation says we're to contend earnestly. That word contend in the original language means the intensity of which we're, go, we're going to contend for that faith. And then he says, and I want you to notice the words. He, he says, once for all delivered to the saints. Not going to be anymore. Can't expect another prophet to come. Can't expect another Bible to be written. Can't expect anybody else to add to what's already said there. This is once for all delivered. Now, I want you to read with me from Colossians, and I'm going to just begin with verse 15. Talking about Jesus, we're, we're thankful. He, he's, you know, the idea that God has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, verse 13. And I went back there for one purpose. For we're told in verse 15, He, who we're talking about, Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. There are a a number of passages that we could use that speaks quite easily about who, who Jesus is. We're told that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now let those words sink in for a little while. He is the image, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. You know, there are a lot of passages that talk about it, but do you remember Philip asked Jesus in John chapter 14, Lord, just show us the Father. We've been with you for, he said, have I been with you so long and yet you... 
You've not known me? Jesus said that to him. You, you, you haven't pictured me yet. And then he says, any man who has seen me has seen the Father. And yet you say, show us the Father and we'll believe. We're told in Colossians 2 and verse 9, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What are we talking about Godhead? All of the authority, all of the power, all of the things that God can do, it's done in Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God the Father. That's the Godhead. And the fullness of that Godhead is found in whom? In Jesus Christ. Sometimes I know that we get a little confused. We think about the birth of Jesus and know that he was born in a physical birth just like you and I. But we forget that he was born of a virgin that he did not have a physical, earthly father. The Holy Spirit came upon her and she became expecting a child. Paul used two terms to illuminate Jesus' relationship with God. He says, first of all, he's in the image of God. He's made like God. And as Jesus told Philip, if you want to know what God's like, look at me, what he's saying. Not me physically, but Jesus speaking. He's the, he's the image of God. He's made in the likeness of God. He is in the, in the image of the invisible God, God that we've never seen. Not just a superscription, not just a flat picture, not just an image like his, uh, of Caesar on the, the coins that they had at that time. He is a likeness. Living, practical. He's the image of God that we can see. He's the image of God that we can understand. We can study it. We can begin to picture what that's like. Now, as I said earlier, trying to imagine the God who can speak and the world comes into existence, is, it, 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 that's difficult for us. I understand that. It is for me too. But Jesus is that likeness. He's that living image of God. He's that practical image of God. He's the image of God that we can see, we can study, we can understand easily. Jesus said, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He's explained it. John chapter 1, verse 18, since God can't be seen, He's made Himself known through Jesus, who's like the Father in all things. Now I want you to think about some things with me. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Hebrew tells us in that particular passage that who being in the brightness, the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, 
upholding all things by the word of him, uh, word of him, his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What did Jesus accomplish? What did he do for us? The second term that Paul used was the term firstborn. He is the firstborn of all creation. Well, now, how does that work? How can we say that? How can he say that, that Jesus is the firstborn? There have been many people born prior to his birth. But not in the sense of having been physically born, not in the sense of having been created, but in the realm of having priority over all things. In Psalms chapter 89, verse 27, David is talking about his son Solomon. And he says, I shall also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. We just meant Solomon wasn't David's firstborn son. But he became king over all. He had authority over all. Christ is supreme. He has priority over all. He is the image of God. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, not firstborn as a physical birth, but as ruling power, authority over all. He is the firstborn from the dead, we're told also in the scripture. So that he might have preeminence over everything. Death's not going to rule over us. Christ is. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, we too shall rise from the dead. Not because death has all that power, but because Jesus has that power. In the Jewish family, the firstborn son was given the place of highest respect. Christ had that position in relation to everything that had been created. Only the Father is not subject unto him. The rest of the universe has been placed under it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 27. And even though he was once dead, he's now alive. For he conquered death. He has a position superior to all who've died, giving him the position of first place. Paul taught this same truth, that through his resurrection and ascension, he was placed over everything, and all things were placed under his feet. Then too, when we're talking about who is this Jesus, think about that question and creation. And read with me again from chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 16 and 17. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. You see, that's really interesting when you think about it. He was prior to all things. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Some translations similar to some of those that I mentioned earlier want to change that around a little. But that's exactly what the scripture said. That's exactly what the inspired writer said. Jesus is the all-time existent, even before time. Jesus existed. John chapter 8, verse 58. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, talking to the children of Israel, children of Corinth about the power of Christ and, and what had happened. He says they all, and the giving some of the history of the Jewish people as they came out of Egypt. And he says, and they all drink the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them. And that rock was Christ. That rock was our Lord. Who followed them and allowed them to do that. And you know, you know the story that we began a moment ago in talking about the idea that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. What kind of power are we talking about with Christ? What kind of creative power is there? You remember a passage when God, in the early part of the book of Genesis, said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness? Of whom does the word thus refer? Let us. Who would that refer to? Obviously Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Not just the Father God himself, but the Godhead. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And I think the pre-existence of Jesus is shown very clearly in what's said there. I, I want you to think of something else. In the verses of 16 and 17, 16 and 17 that we read, there is one word that when I read that stands out in bold print. Maybe I'm reading it wrong. I don't think so. That's the word all. Do you know, did you notice that that little word A-L-L in these two verses occurs four times? Whether we're talking about all things that were created doesn't eliminate anything. Everything that you can think of. And he's the firstborn over all creation. That's verse 15. 
And on we could go with that word all. It emphasizes that all-inclusive power of Jesus. And that pre-existence, that inclusive power, is found many, many times in the Scriptures. He, this is not some Johnny come lately. He, he's the creator. He's the sustainer of the universe. He's before all things. Before Abraham was, I am. He's not talking about he was born prior to that. No. He always existed. Before the creation of the world. Before time. Christ has always existed. It's true that he took on human flesh when he was born of Mary, but that birth was not his beginning. It was his birth as a physical being, but it wasn't the beginning of Christ. I want you to notice something else. In him, all things consist. He's not only prior to all things, but in him all things consist. All created things. All things hold together. Uh, Paul affirms that Christ is not only the creator of all things, but he's the sustainer. I want you to understand the New International Version where it reads, uh, as we've read it, in him all things consist. Translates that phrase, in him all things hold together. Now picture something. What keeps this old world turning? Spinning at the proper speed? Tilted to the proper angle? What keeps all of that kind of thing going when he, when he does that? The answer is Jesus. He's the author. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. The answer to the question of who is this Jesus anyway, Paul affirms that he is, the, he, he is first the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of the universe. In other words, he keeps it going. He is the one who is supreme over all. Seven times in these six verses, you read that little word, all. Seven times in six verses. What are we leaving out that Jesus didn't, didn't do? Nothing. He was there for the creation and he created all things. All things were made by him and for him. He is, he is the sustainer that keeps that, that universe going. I know we have people today that study the world and all the spinning of the world and all of the tilting and all of this kind of thing. They have their own opinions about how it, where it came from and how it got here and all of that. But I can tell you how it came here. Jesus created it. Jesus made it. It was by Jesus that the world came into existence and by Jesus the world continues in existence. Then, too, I want you to notice Jesus in the church. Paul mentions that. Read with me verse 18 beginning. 
and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. And by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having been made peace through through the blood of his cross, Jesus came. And we can imagine the great power that that he has. Who is this Jesus anyway? That's answering in connection with the church. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the creator. He's the firstborn from the dead. Oh, other people have been raised from the dead. Elijah raised the, the woman's son, if you remember. Jesus raised a several. Lazarus, the poor widow's son, the little girl. You think about this for a moment. But he's the firstborn from the dead. He's, he's the leader of those. He has priority over death. He's, de- he, he's de- uh, defeated death. He has preeminence over all things. He's the fullness of the Father. He's the head of the church. What a marvelous declaration that is. The church does not belong to man. Let's just, let's just make sure about that. It wasn't built by, nor, was it, nor is it sustained by men. That's not how it came into existence. That's not how it continues. The church does not belong to man. Now you think about that for a moment. Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. What we read there. Paul said, be on guard for yourselves. And for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood, Acts 20, 28. He's the head over all things to the church. Man simply does not have the right. He does not have the authority to legislate, to impose, or to assume any kind of authority over the church. Christ is the head. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. I want you to think about that for a moment. Paul used the concept of marriage and the marriage relationship to make clear Christ's relationship to the church. No other organization besides the local congregation is found in the New Testament. No association, no council, no synod, no presbytery, only the local body with Christ as the head is seen in the New Testament. Man wants to govern, man wants to organize, man wants to to run it to suit himself, to usurp the power. But Christ alone is the head of the church. He is the firstborn from the dead.
He was made supreme by his resurrection. Paul says he was the one who was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. It's interesting to me, and I hope it will be for you, the apostolic preachers, Paul, Peter, the others that were there, emphasized the lordship of Jesus. Do you realize only twice in the book of Acts, Jesus is referred to as the Savior? In the same book, Jesus is referred 92 times as Lord. What does Jesus do with the church? He's the ruler of the church. He's the head of the church. He is the one with whom we today are reconciled by His blood. We've reversed that idea of referring to Jesus as Savior. He is our Lord and Savior. There's no question about that. But in order to emphasize the, severe, the severity of His rule, the strength of His power, the apostolic preachers did so by referring to Him as Lord. Who's your Lord? We emphasize salvation rather than lordship. But remember, Jesus has that preeminence. He has that idea. And by Him we're to reconcile all things unto Him. If you read that, and I read it for you just a moment ago, Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, you read the great power of Jesus. And by Him to reconcile all things by Himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Verse 20. We read that a moment ago. Now all things, we read, are of God, who has reconciled to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. I want you to think, some, think of something. Why do you and I need to be reconciled anyway? Read with me another passage. I don't know whether you can read it or not. That print is very weak. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand's not so short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so heavy, uh, that, so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. What separated us from God? Why do we need reconciliation? Why do we need to be brought back to God? It's our sin. When we sinned, we separated ourselves from God. And there's nothing that we individually can do to pay for that sin removal. It can't be done. The only way it could be done, the wages of sin is death, remember. 
Jesus paid the wages for us. The wages of sin is death. He paid that price for us. And through that, God's reconciled us by the blood of Jesus. Now, we've been separated from God by sin. We need someone to reconcile man, and Jesus is that someone. Notice the, the means by which this reconciliation takes place. It's by the blood of His cross. Can God die on the cross? Jesus did. Jesus is God. Paul has clearly shown his deity, and yet Jesus died on that cross. Therefore, God died on the cross. By the blood of those who was the very image of the invisible God, we're reconciled. To be reconciled, we must contact that blood. Jesus purchased the church with His blood, Acts 20 and verse 28. And thus to be reconciled by the blood of Jesus, I must abide where that blood resides, in the church purchased with the blood. For me to realize any benefits from His blood, I must be part of that for which, that which was purchased by that blood. The same act that provides the washing away of sin makes one a member of the church that Jesus built. Acts 2, 47 and 48. Human mind has difficulty with this idea. How could a holy, all-wise God die on the cross? Yet He did. And by His blood all men can be reconciled. Now who is this Jesus anyway? He's the creator, He's the sustainer, of the whole universe. He was before all, he is before all things. He is the head of the church. He is the reconciler who shed his blood on the cross and brings man back to God. He was not somewhere between God and man, but he was God in man. The fullness of the Father in a man. The man God, Jesus Christ. Question, who is this Jesus anyway? raises another question. Have I surrendered to Jesus? And have you surrendered to Jesus? The answer to that second question will determine your destiny. Read with me a few more verses and we'll talk about them rather quickly. Beginning in verse 21. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now he's reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith grounded, steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you've heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Remember, we're children of the king. We're children of the king of this creation. The crown is laid up for us in heaven. We are qualified for God's inheritance. And I think that's a tremendously important thing for us to understand. Just remember who Jesus is. He's the creator, the image of the invisible God. The head of the church, the one who reconciled us. He made peace with God for us. 
We've been brought back together. Separated because of our sin, now brought back together with God. I want you to notice some things here. Notice the element that separated us from God. and Sinners need to be reconciled. But I want you to remember something. We're reconciled to God. In Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 that we mentioned a moment ago, we know why we're separated from God. It's not that we intended to do that, maybe. It maybe we it's something we didn't understand at the time we were doing, but that sin separated us. And the element that separated us from from God was sin. We were hostile to God because we acted in opposition to God. When Paul resisted was preaching in the synagogue in Corinth, Acts eighteen and verse six, his listeners resisted and blasphemed him. Paul consequently had to go somewhere else and preach the gospel. But God's on our side. He's for us. However, to go contrary to His law, He wishes, His hopes is to oppose oneself. That's not what He wants of us to do. He placed us on one side and God on the other side. Satan did. And we became enemies of God. That hostile mind is evidenced by evil deeds that we've done and Jesus set the standard Matthew chapter 7 when he says so then you'll know them by their fruit Matthew 7 verse 20 by the deeds done in the body we are to be judged 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 in Matthew 25 Jesus pictured the great judgment scene all nations being gathered before him on that last day And the surprising truth about that judgment scene is the standard used. It'll not be some doctrinal question. It'll be what have they done? What deeds did we perform? They had not fed the hungry. They had not visited those that needed visiting, sick or in prison. In Revelation 20 and verse 12, John saw... What was, uh, saw the books opened according, and men judged from the things which are written in those books according to their deeds. Why were they characterized as enemies of God? Because of the pattern of their life. Sinners need to be re- reconciled to God. And we, we, can, we can go on. We can recognize that we need to be reconciled to God and, and talked about that. There's a prominence or a permanence there that we want. What must I do to maintain my permanence in God? You're going to have to stand fast. Did you notice that one little word that I told you to pay special attention to? Verse 23. If. What, what does that mean? It means there's a condition required. If I'm going to remain a child of God, I'm going to have to continue steadfastly in the faith, grounded and steadfast. What a great Savior we have. What a great Lord we have. What a great Creator. We can never 
worship and serve Jesus too strongly or too much. Bow with me for a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to you for Jesus, for you, and for the Holy Spirit, and for the great power that Jesus demonstrated to us while he's here, and the great loving kindness showed by giving us a way of salvation, a way of the forgiveness of our sins. Father, be with us, guide us, keep us in your power, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.